Hello, my friends, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World Information Station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 202 for the week of December 26th, 2010. As we wander the promenade and explore the pavilions of World Showcase in Epcot, we find ourselves transported across the globe to exotic destinations around the world. And in doing so, we were afforded the opportunity to share in and learn about the people and their culture through attractions, exhibits, their food, and even direct communication with those that call these places home. But as much as we do so, sometimes we wonder just how much these pavilions actually reflect the regions upon which they are based. So this week, we will explore one of these pavilions with guests who hail from the United Kingdom. We'll wander the streets and tour the interiors of these buildings to look at how, how well, and why these landmarks and extraordinary details exist. I'll have a few announcements and play some of your voicemails at the end of the show, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. World Showcase in Epcot Center, as I still like to call it, we talk about the ability to tour the world uh, in just an afternoon or an evening and visit some countries that you might not otherwise have the opportunity to visit. And in doing so, it allows you to learn about the people and the culture, oftentimes I think through the food, and because of the food, the architecture and, and so, so much more. And the Imagineers who put together Epcot did incredible amounts of painstaking research to try and make this so detailed and as authentic as possible in, in everything that they do. But as we walk through and as we wander the promenade and sort of wander our way through the streets of some of these pavilions, you wonder just how authentic it really is. How closely do these pavilions match what real life is like in those countries. And so today, we're going to try and answer that question as we tour the United Kingdom Pavilion with listeners from the United Kingdom, who are going to sort of help us wander our way through. 
And uh, so tell us your name, tell us where in the UK you're from. Hello, I'm Emma and I'm from Norwich, Norfolk, which is a couple of hours from London. Hi, I'm Mark. Uh, I'm also from Norwich in Norfolk and, uh, as Em says, a couple of hours from London, sort of located in the southeast of England. And you guys can talk all day long because I just love <laughs> the accent. And we're going you know, to talk about that a little bit because as we were uh, just chatting here a little bit and talking to someone from the Rosen Crown, you were sort of giggling at, at trying to identify where their accents were from. And now that I've been you know, talking to you, I always sort of said, well, there's just the English accent, but there are different sort of, I guess as we in the United States, there's a Southern accent, there's your Brooklyn accent, whatever it is. There's a wide variety of accents from the UK as well. Yes, um, we were saying that there's that sort of north and south divide. Um, we come from Norfolk and it's considered quite a, a country accent. Um, you've got your London accent, which is your, your sort of uh, cockney rhyming slang. And yeah, definitely the northern accents. As we walk around Epcot, we can, we can definitely pick out the, one, the people that are from up north. Yeah, it's quite a distinctive accent, the, 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 the northern accent. And, but then again, I guess the, the southern accent is as well because you, they call us country folk because of it, I dare say. <laughs> but yeah, you know, for a lot of us, we hear English accents in Mary Poppins and that's what we identify as an English accent. But uh, as we've been talking here and, and talking to some of the people from the UK, we're picking out some of those different things. And, I, and to me, it sounds like they're from a different part of the world. From you, you can just identify what part of the country they're from. And I think also, um, as sort of people grow up, uh, the traditional sort of English language slips by as well. Um, children watch American films and pick up sort of phrases, and so perhaps the the Mary Poppins English <laughs> is uh, will be one day no more. Yeah, and you know it's just one element, and that's one of the things obviously that I love about World Showcase is the ability to again learn about. The, peop the United Kingdom from the people who work here and that's why Disney was brilliant in having people from that country or from that region work in the pavilions because it affords such a great opportunity for us to learn and so when you hear an accent from somebody and you read their tag they can tell you about where they're from and so many of them are very passionate about telling you about their hometown but as you know I as somebody who's never been to the UK as I walk through the UK pavilion um, I'm fascinated by the details and the trivia and sort of, sort of trying to identify based on what Imagineering has told us or Disney has told us as to the areas that they reflect. And just, you know, as we're standing here sort of in this central plaza along the promenade, as you look down the streets, and we'll talk about the fact that there are four distinct, distinct streets that make up the UK pavilion, uh, it's really another one of those journeys through time. And as we walk through, uh, we're going to talk about, you know, if, if this really is that case and maybe if we can see some of these buildings still today. So if you look to your left, if you face the tea caddy, the Twinings tea caddy, you'll see the number on there is 1706. But this really is meant to represent the UK in the 1500s. It was modeled after Anne Hathaway's cottage, cottage on Stratford-on-Avon. As you walk down the architecture as the roof line the size of the building changes the next building over is the queen's table this is a two-story building uh, as opposed to the single story tea caddy you see the large gable barge boards and the diamond shaped moldings and the chevrons and the clovers uh, again this is us sort of walking through the uk 
in the 1600s and sort of it's growing up and out. Farther back, as you walk to the Queen Anne room, you'll see that that's about the 1700s. The facade of the building is no longer wood. It's all in plaster. And as you go to the 1800s, that's the Lord and Ladies. You see it's a, it's a dress stone. There's a, the, the columns giving you an idea that you have sort of moved forward through time. As you cross the street over to Tudor Lane, the toy soldier is there. You're really sort of coming full circle. You're kind of going back again. Uh, and sort of if you walk down the opposite side of the street, you see these distinctive styles in the stonework and the brickwork and the woodwork. And as we sort of start to wander through, you can sort of help us, guide us along as to um, where we might find these. And then we'll come back over to the Rose and Crown and talk about these uh, multiple varieties of traditional English pugs. But let's kind of start, start here over the tea caddy, where we're talking about how this is supposed to be representative of a time hundreds of years ago. Is this still something that you'd see in the UK? And if so, where might you find it? Well, I think uh, that, that cottage is actually with a, with a thatched roof. You still get cottages with thatched roofs in the UK even today, um, more typically in places uh, like the Cotswolds, perhaps, uh, more kind of um, smaller villages there, but also uh, where we're from in, in Norfolk, because there's a, a source of reeds which are used for the, for the actual thatch, you'll find uh, cottages sprung up around those places that still stay there because those roofs stay there for, for years and years. You know, they're very durable. But it's interesting, this cottage, you said it was from base uh, Stratford-upon-Avon, which is, of course, where Shakespeare was from. So I think if you were to go to Stratford-upon-Avon today, there's obviously a, a lot of it's preserved because of Shakespeare's uh, connections. So you'll see a lot of uh, um, gear towards tourists. So those sort of properties with the, with the dark wood beams, and usually the, the, they were made from... Uh, from the substance called wattle and daub, I think the the uh, the actual obviously there's no bricks there in those times, which was a, which was a mixture of some weird clays that they used to stick together, and they were they were particularly durable as well. As, as well. But there's not not a great many of them left, I would say. But Stratford upon Avon is probably as good a place to see them as any. And if you saw them, are they still used as residents, or are they all basically sort of historical tourist place locations? I think a bit of both. I think that um, especially in, in villages where you've still got thatch cottages, um, people buy them as homes and they take pride in actually renovating them and keeping them as they were. Um, and, yeah, they, they like to actually live in them as their little cottage. Right. And obviously they are very, very small. And we'll, we'll sort of walk through the outside streets first and maybe go inside, talk about the shops themselves. Yeah. but. Obviously, from the size of the building, it's a very, very small. Yeah, it's a it's your quaint English cottage. <laughs> actually, I think this is where kind of forced perspective is is the uh, is sort of true to life actually, because people were a lot shorter in, yeah. in those days. And so, if you were to go in one of those cottages in the UK that's still in use, one of the first things you'd have to do probably is duck a little bit as you go in through the door. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I possibly Coming not you two. <laughs> I'm not particularly tall, by the way, but I might have to duck a bit. But the uh, the ceilings are also quite low, and you'll find they're quite often beamed ceilings where the beams will be precariously near, near your head height. But that's more reflective of the, the size of the people of, of the yeah. time, and those features obviously are still preserved because they're big, heavy beams. Yeah. And as we we start walking uh, down the street a little bit farther, again you come to the Queen's Table, which according to the sign says was established uh, in 1702. Obviously a very different type of architecture. 
uh, again because of the dark woods that are used on the outside. The un- interesting thing about this too, and you were mentioning forced perspective, is you see that the footprint on the ground level is relatively small. But as you grow up, as you go up, it grows outward. And from what I understand, it's because you were taxed based on how big of a footprint you had on the ground. So as they went up, they sort of went out as well in order to gain more space. But is this something you'd see still to this day? And again, you talk about these paned, um, these lead paned glass windows, again, with crests in the windows. And we'll talk on the other side about some of the other crests that you can see. But where might you find a building like this? Again, very ornately detailed and carved on the outside as well. I think that these still exist in, in your town and city centres. Um, one, one place that springs to mind is York, um, a very historical place um, visited by a lot of tourists because it still reflects this time um, in England. And, yeah, you know, you can walk down small cobbled streets and there'll be these types of buildings on either side. Um, but most, I'd say most cities or towns in England still have them. Them. Um, we've certainly got got a couple of streets like this in in Norwich in Norfolk. Um, most of them are now shops. I, you know, I think people don't tend to live in them as much. They're more sort of for, for retail shops. But is it, it is all, sorry, it is also interesting that as you said, they they did sort of tend to build upwards and, and forwards to, because of the the size was, was was sort of in the upper floors. And what you'll find is places like York where you'll have a street that's uh, lined both sides of properties like this you'll find the streets are quite dark because of the <laughs> yeah. fact that okay. despite the fact there's plenty of space on ground level where you're walking where the, where the pathway is the, the cobbled street if you look up it's actually the buildings seem to be kind of approaching each other from each side because of the fact they're um, built up and, and kind of forwards so it's uh, that's definitely a, a, a feature that they pay some attention to here. And it almost looks as though you said that a lot of these are shops. It almost get the sense that maybe that's how they were built. They were because of the big uh, glass windows in the front. But as you look up and you've got the pane glasses, you can almost get a sense that maybe there were residents up above on the second, third, maybe even the fourth floor as you look all the way to the top. And you, you can almost get a sense of seeing the, uh, the lamp almost being that... Um, you know, an early sort of gas lamp sort of hanging over. Uh, and again, I guess they've been preserved very much and kept the same way to this day. Yeah, and um, also what you'll find is if you walk down certain streets that have got these buildings still, they'll be a lot more crooked. Um, You know, you can sort of walk on one floor and the floor will be sloping or some of the windows will be sloping because of the materials that have been used to build them. It's, It's worn and moved over time, so this is probably quite a sort of straight example of how they actually are now. It's interesting they've got the the roses in the, engraved into the wood because it was certainly a, a growing feature in, as we go through to time in the UK because of the royal family that were on the throne at the time, the the, uh, the Tudor rose as it was called. So you'll, you, there's something something you see growing through through time of that era of the buildings here. But it's interesting to see that it's here because it was a, a, a quite a common feature, wasn't it? And in in buildings in in the coin in still in coins that we've got now. And I didn't realize it had a tie to the royal family, the fact that they were using the roses. So, again, it's, again, Disney's attention to detail and making sure everything is as authentic as possible. 
Sure, I mean it's uh, it, it, the Tudor Rose was uh, was was definitely um, tied in with the with the royal family at the time. If you've ever seen the program The Tudors on the which is on HBO, we we certainly get it in the UK and we love it. Um, it's uh, you can see a, a lot of this stuff in that. Actually, it's their, their attention to detail in that show's been great, hasn't it? <laughs> so let's move down a little bit farther down the street again, staying to the left hand side here, where. You come to uh, Lords and Ladies. Again, you see a, a, a big change again in the architecture going from the dark woods and the plasters to really sort of a, uh, a much more um, plastered, no wood only, um, the flower box on the outside, the lace curtains up above, the very ornately detailed sign hanging over the shop. Uh, again, this too, something you'd still find, and if so, where? I think again in in places like um, in in some of the market towns like like York and e- even places like Norwich, there are because of the way the town's built up from the centre outwards, you'd find you'd find these sort of buildings. I think you can also see that it reflects the fact that in that era, people, I, th- I think especially women who were mainly based at home in those in those sort of eras, had was encouraged to spend more time, especially if they were wealthier, paying attention to the detail of the house. It suddenly became a uh, more fashionable to do things like put net curtains up at your windows, have window boxes, and so on. It, it was a whole, it was a whole kind of industry, wasn't it? In a wallpaper and things like that. It almost portrays the wealth of the person inside. You know, putting some of your furnishings in the window so you can see what it's like inside. But the the building also reminds me very much of the sort of modern townhouses that are now being built in Britain. Um, you know the sort of three stories it's 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 quite narrow and again sort of goes up the stories um yeah it reminds me very much of the sort of the the modern townhouse that you know that we bought a couple of years ago yeah and again it, it looks um whereas the other ones were much more rougher this is a lot more refined too so you sort of get the sense that you it it would be a much more uh formal fancy home again like you said talking about the curtains as you move to the left into the sort of open park area, you are on what is known as Tudor Lane. And there are a number of distinct styles in here, and we sort of were wandering here before. Uh, the first building here, which is on to the left of Tudor Lane, right next to Lords and Ladies, uh, again has uh, much fancier work on the outside. Again, the, the four columns. Um, the metal work is something new, the first introduction of that really in this generation. I think this is, a, again, um, moving from the Lords and Ladies, you're starting to see some similar themes there, but because th- this this era was a lot more kind of ostentatious in the in the UK, people were being, especially the upper classes, there was a lot more um, encouragement to be grand about everything, make grand statements, but also I think it's interesting that the architecture did change because there was a lot more uh, that was perhaps the first appearance of columns in buildings and this you'll see a lot of symmetry in, in this style of building and that you could you know one side is a mirror image of another and th- those sort of properties exist I would say all over t- towns and cities in, in the UK that yeah. because they're they think they last forever I mean l- look at look at the how, how solid it, it all looks and the, you know I think it's fair to say that that sort of material does stand the test of time so you'll still see London for example you'll see a, a lot of properties like this in 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 London um but again it's you can definitely tell because of the types of uh, um sills on the mm. top of the windows the symmetry in in the buildings you can 
you can always tell it belongs to that era from those sort of signifiers. You also see, I mean, just looking at the windows and through the windows, the draperies and the curtains, much more, um, much more formal, much, fa- much, much fanciful. Even on the exterior, we saw, you know, there were flower pots outside, and, and then moving over by lords and ladies to trimmed hedges. Here, you now actually have metal gate around a very nicely appointed flower beds and hanging flower pots, and again, those hedges that are, are very, very um, appropriately dressed and clean, you know, neat. Yeah, I mean, you can see that this would have been a very grand building um, that the person would have wanted to show off as their residence. And, I mean, the sort of the iron fence um, is kind of... It's decorative, but it also kind of frames the building, almost draws attention to the building and the flowers in the flower bed as well. It's, it's a very impressive building. And you almost kind of get the sense, and, and tell me if this is wrong, that it almost would sort of open up into a courtyard and, and a nice cobble. Again, this is the a Disney-fied version of a cobblestone street, but I have to assume that much rougher cobblestone streets like this would probably still exist. Yeah, you, you do get the cobbled streets, um, especially in the areas where they've wanted to preserve it for sort of the tourist area. But the, the cobbles obviously have been worn down or the shape has changed over the years. And, you know, it can be a, a fun experience for even people from the UK to walk down a cobbled street. Um, they're probably very shiny, uh, very slippery when they're wet because they have such a shiny um, shine surface normally but yes you know the the sort of the garden area and the 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 fences here um yeah you would expect a a grand house like this to have looked out over such a you know a beautiful kind of area yes so something like now the one of the features of of the uk pavilion that kids enjoy and adults enjoy and sometimes a little fun overlook experience is the hedge maze that surrounds the grandstand and again looking back to the columns and the fence and the light poles that's, that very much tie into this building here on Tudor Lane. Is this something that, that was a Disney creation for the, the theme park or is this something that you might actually still see in the UK? I think you still see it. Um, I don't know if they tend to be so much in the residential areas, so close to the buildings, um, but you certainly get parks you'll you'll get your, your city center um park and it will have the the sort of bandstand in it um the the iron fences um and a lot of gardens um you, you get a lot of public and private gardens in the uk um english people love to garden <laughs> you know it's something that they do spend hours uh, you know perfecting i think well, in terms of the hedge maze as well i think i think it's interesting that it does first appear alongside uh, the, the sort of mansion property on tudor lane because i think there is a, a direct association as when the when the hedge mazes first appeared in the uk and we were talking earlier that they tended to appear um in large uh, attached to large properties, properties with large gardens, where, um, again, this kind of almost like a showiness as to, as to what you could, you could uh, mm-hmm. pr- produce. And there was uh, um, certainly hedge mazes that still exist in, in what we call National Trust properties in the UK, which are generally halls that were either used by royalty or had, had some sort of uh, connection in which they're, they're preserved and they're not allowed to be knocked down or built upon. And often you'll find those have got quite 
um, extensive gardens for people just to, to look around the gardens themselves, but um, a, f- a fair few of them have got hedge mazes, which are typically, of course, o- overhead height. Yes. So that, um, and, and we've seen sort of period dramas in, in the UK where they've uh, part of the... Uh, uh, a kind of a garden party or a tea party in the garden is involved sending guests into the into the hedge maze uh, <laughs> uh, to see whether they can uh, find their way to the middle and out again so it's definitely definitely a feature yeah it would be nice to see perhaps part of the maze that wasn't sort of directly in front of the bandstand if they could actually grow it higher so <laughs> that it was you know children could actually sort of run round in there and uh, you know take a while to figure <laughs> out how to sort of get get to the exit right mom and dad go to the pub leave your kids yeah. in the head maze for a couple <laughs> yeah. of hours but it, you know this there's definitely sort of um and again this this building here we're talking about is on tudor lane around the corner is Lower Regency Street, but in this courtyard here, again, we get the sense that it's a much more upscale, much more regal area. Again, the gardens are so, so well-appointed. And on Upper Regency Street, across the way, there is a little more subtle change in uh, architecture. You get that dressed stone on the bottom. You get the columns now in front of the doors. Uh, Again, that's the brickwork up top, and again, those wrought iron um, balconies but again, you get a sense that this is something that you might see today and definitely on the, on the higher end. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I know that there's several streets in sort of uh, the centre of London. that Regency these, Street? Yeah, it is Regency Street. Um, and I think places like Bath have these buildings as well. Um, and they are very expensive um, buildings. You, you know, we're sort of saying that you, you get a sort of... There's a few sort of celebrities, perhaps TV personalities, uh, pop stars that... Um, buy these properties renovate them and it's yeah it's 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 definitely for the uh, wealthy person in the UK I think you can see they still retain some of the features of the the previous property that was on Tudor Lane that the you, those columns are, are pretty much standard for those type of yeah. houses but obviously it's the first time that you'll see kind of brickwork in 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 the in the UK part of uh, um this park and I think that's pr- pretty authentic as well because those buildings in, in London for example tended to be that kind of half and half with the stonework and the brickwork but quite often you'd find that these properties weren't just the two or three stories that you can see at ground level they would often have a, a basement as well yes. quite a sizable mm-hmm. basement and what you'd normally find is where the railings are at the front of the houses which is quite correct and authentic instead of that hedge there in front of the railings you'd see perhaps half a window which would belong to the basement and that would that would be the only part of the basement that was sort of visible if you like but you you definitely see it was there because there'd be a window almost at shoe level in the street and this is why these properties were so expensive because they were typically sort of three or four stories plus a basement and of course because and appropriately appropriately enough the morning we decided to record this segment was very, very cold and overcast <laughs> and chilly in Florida. You see that, that, that all these houses have uh, fireplaces because, as you said, you're like, yeah, this is exactly what the UK yeah. really is like. Not, Yeah, not much uh, sunshine or warm <laughs> weather. And it's interesting because I just noted the, noticed that the chimneys, um, and I think that we went through um, a time, you know, sort of sort of before the 1990s perhaps where people were um 
you know, didn't want open fires. You know, it was all about electric or gas fires. So let's cover up the chimneys and, you know, rely on modern things. Um, but I think sort of from the 1990s up until today, um, we're very keen on restoring the properties to how they were meant to be. Um, and so you'll find that a lot more people have got the, the now open fires. And so, you know, the, the chimneys are, are, are being used as to how they were you know they were meant to be used it's interesting too as i'm looking at the roof lines and the roofing materials it goes from shingle to clay to um to slate to tile so each of the um that changes as well as as well as the front of the facade as you come back around uh into the main street which is tudor lane uh again you get the storefronts once again and, again, and it changes from that residential dressed uh, stonework to very flat plaster. And again, you've got this um, clock that I assume that you might find sort of in the town centre. Yes, I mean, a lot of town centres still have, still have the original clock from, uh, from, yeah. those, from that time. I think you're looking at as well, especially with the type of materials, that they're starting to become more kind of mass available materials like the sandstone that you see now so you'll see um a lot of of, this kind of reminds me actually of the kind of the city walls actually that you'd see the sort of lining still you can still see in some cities in the uk where the original city was sort of fortified with a with a castle wall and uh um though the material was is was widely available it wasn't particularly durable so the over time the weather has eroded quite a lot of that that sort of material so but you still see it in cities in the uk today but typically the the clock tower would still remain in this in the center of the city and it matches the material that was used on the lords and ladies across the way so the coloring is the same the material is the same as as we start walking down towards the crown and crest you see that that also matches the queen's table again it's that dark wood that ornately carved wood as well as uh, a different pattern but the brickwork outside and the leaded pane glass and we also start to see some of the crests uh, that you'll find in the windows as well I mean, uh, just noticing the amazing sort of detail in the carving in the wood there around the building. Um, and again, it's, it was like their way of taking pride in their buildings um, and, yeah, putting the crests in the windows. And I think that that, that again, still exists in certain places. And again, people are trying to, to restore these windows um, and yet, you know, it's it's very similar to the building across the street. And again, you would find this down lining both sides of a, of a you know a pathway. It's appropriate to that again that transition through time yeah. that we see in other parts of Walt Disney World, like in the Magic Kingdom, for example. Yes, it is. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting with this because these, as Em was saying, these lead-lined windows here. Um, they kind of come back into fashion, don't yeah, they? So yeah. there is a still a desire for people to even now to have these kind of lead lead lined windows, and of course that's when you get all the great kind of stained glass uh, of the of the crests in the windows as well. And you can even see that the glass panes themselves change. It's more of a a dirtier bubbled glass as opposed to the clean glass that you find over in Lords and Ladies again. So appropriate to the time period um, and very much matching, but. Things change dramatically to a certain degree as you go to the crown and crest and you have this very massive stone, almost castle-like structure here at the end of Tudor Lane. Where might you find 
something like this? And, and do these still exist? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think you're looking, particularly the contrast of the building next to it, you're almost looking at how the different c- classes at the time, like this, this building would have probably belonged to a lord or uh, someone of kind of royal standing. And I think this is typical of the sort of property you'd find as a uh, preserved as a national trust property yeah. in, the, in the UK. You're unlikely to find something like this in a town centre, for example, because these were typically country estates. Yeah. So you'd find this, you know, a detached property on its own with, with probably quite large grounds, a huge drive up to it because it kind of stressed privacy and a little bit of opulence and usually had some of the characteristics of its owner uh, as part of the face here. Like you've got the kind of English shield in the, in the stonework here and a lot more you probably I'd imagine imported stonework because you know money probably wasn't an object for the for the owner of a property like this and if you go to the UK now I'd encourage you to go to a a, a national trust property that is a is a a hall typically they're called a a hall uh, not a mansion this is we're talking about sprawling properties here Um, so they're sort of preserved as as tourist destinations and museums and things like that sort of kept in their original condition Absolutely. I mean, you'd not only find the outside looking like that, but generally you'd, the inside would be preserved with a lot of the, say, original tapestries on the walls or the, even, the, even the original four-poster beds. And you, as a tourist, you'd be able to kind of have a walkway through the, through the building and, uh, and, and look at everything as, as it was preserved. Yeah, they, they quite often set up the room so that you can walk through to see you know, the master's study and, and then the, the bedrooms. Um, perhaps a dining room will be all laid out as well. Um, and quite often you'll also um, be able to see sort of the servants' quarters and the kitchen and everything downstairs, which, again, would have been you know, shut, shut away. It wouldn't have been, you wouldn't have been able to see it from, you know, from outside. And they'd usually have uh, huge fireplaces as well, yeah. make a, a, a really big big deal of how ornate the fireplace was, usually with perhaps some carvings around there, which is why you typically see quite large chimney stacks attached yeah. to, to properties <laughs> like this. And to appropriately call the crown and crest, because if you pay attention to the stained glass, you'll see that there are assumedly family crests for the family or families that would live inside. Absolutely, and you'd find that even now in those sort of properties that are still around in England, you wouldn't have to go far to find uh, the crest or the flag attached to that particular family or that particular um, uh, family name, for example. So I, I think that's pretty pretty authentic. Yeah, and Disney, again, in, in true fashion, models this not after necessarily a single place, but they try and sort of take a number of... This one actually received a lot of its influences from uh, Sir Walter Scott's Abbotsford Manor on this side of the building. And as we walk around towards the front side or the east face, uh, you're going to see that it continues but then changes as you get onto the main area of the promenade. But if you look at the front of the sportsman shop, it carries over again those those large, um, very imposing turrets and and, uh, archway and the heavy wooden doors that again are appropriate for that. As you look at the front of the building, which is now High Street, uh, you'll see that it changes once again, and it really is all brickwork and, again, some uh, masonry work, the leaded pane glass. This was actually modeled after Hampton Court on this side, and one thing that, as we were talking about the family crest, is that if you look uh, facing the building from the promenade, if you look to the top left windows, uh, which are now sort of outlined in white, you'll see 
four crests. You'll see three and then a fourth on top. Those actually represent the four regions of the United Kingdom, England, Scotland, North Ireland, and Wales. And if you see, if you put the bottom three, if you overlay them on top of each other, they, they come together to form the Union Jack. Absolutely, and uh, I think, as we were saying earlier, this property, I think, is pretty accurately modelled on Hampton Court because uh, it was a kind of court of the kings at the time, so typically you'd find this, 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 these two colours, the bricks and the, and, the, and the plaster around the windows, are um, very indicative of uh, what Hampton Court actually looks like and uh, would be a place where the king would have his kind of courtiers and sort of ladies-in-waiting, so it wouldn't be a place for um, Joe Public to, to go to. As it would be very much for the, for the royal family and their, and their kind of uh, servants and their, their, their friends and family at the time. Um, and again, you've got that because it was so imposing. Everything was kind of built on a fairly grand scale. But you've, you know, you've even got the turrets on the corners because they would have had uh, guards on those on those turrets. And I think they've even got the the sort of slit windows at the at the end there, which is where which is for, for archers. You know, the, it was those windows were that size so that people could fire a bow and arrow through them and not get easily <laughs> hit by return fire. <laughs> Um, I think it's just interesting the, the sort of detail below the the sort of the Union Jack and the flags there. You've also got the the English rose um, and the Scottish thistle in the windows yep. there. Um, so I don't know if there's another one around the other side as well. Where I believe on the other, and that and that's the thing that I think is interesting about this pavilion is that you not only have to try and represent. Um, multiple regions but you need to represent multiple regions over time so you know a lot of people say oh I'm going to the to the England pavilion well it's not the England pavilion it's the United Kingdom pavilion and you know you, we have to imagine as somebody who's never been there before that the areas of Scotland and Ireland and Wales are all very different so you've got to represent those regions and you've got to represent them throughout history so going back to the 1500s and that's why I think this was a really interesting pavilion to start off with because just in these couple of streets back here and again we didn't even get to behind the Twinings building there's there are gardens and pathways and again more of those hedge maze there how well and how accurately and how appropriately do you think at least this section first we won't even, we'll get to the to the pub and whatnot on the other side how well it represents so as somebody from the United Kingdom how well it represents your area and your and your people I think so. I think um, you have to look at each building individually to see how it represents. Um, you know, you, you can't just walk down the street here um, and think that this is a typical street in the UK. Um, but if you look at each building individually, you can, you know, you, you can be certain that at different parts in the UK, you will find at least one of those buildings. And in most towns and cities, um, you'll have the small, an example of the smaller building and then the big stately homes you know there's a lot of them out there in the countryside and and again you know people from the UK will become members of the National Trust and and they spend many a weekend touring around all of these stately homes um, and the and the gardens that go with the stately homes as well so I was talking before about my desire to you know I want to go to England as when my kids get older we can all appreciate it more and you were saying yeah these are things that you would find you know as you were touring around so for 
the people who are in Epcot that may not be able to get there, they are getting sort of a, a flavor and a sample of it. Well, I think it's testimony to the creators of this place that we can come from, from the UK and just, you know, without actually having to or needing to go into a huge detail about about the buildings can walk past something and see a place like this and think that reminds me of Hampton Court or the cottage over there that reminds me of uh, um, of you know Stratford upon Avon and and the, and the other buildings that we've seen perhaps remind us of market towns in in the UK so and then and then when you step back from that and you look at the detail that's gone into those you then realize just how much understanding has gone on with uh, so I, I like you know as much as I can stand here from the UK and say that reminds me of uh, Hampton Court maybe for uh, an American tourist who might come to the UK they might go to Hampton Court and say that, that reminds me of that building in the UK <laughs> yeah that's the idea and it's funny because we were laughing before as we were walking by and we're here and again there's that um, you know everything in Everything's so proper and so finely done, and, and the hedges are so neatly appointed, and that's the way they would be. And then we were laughing because there's three, quote-unquote, traditional red telephone booths. And you said, well, you know, you don't really see those. Just like my kids wouldn't, wouldn't know what a phone booth is now, those are sort of almost a, a throwback. Absolutely. We were saying it's a... You know, there are probably kids coming here with English parents who won't have, who won't have seen those telephone boxes because they were pretty much everywhere a few years ago um, particularly when one phone company kind of had the ownership of those but since there's competition with with phone companies they and people obviously have mobiles now that they use that those red telephone boxes have swiftly disappeared I think you'll find a couple there's still a couple around in London I think one was featured in a fairly recent Harry Potter film as well uh, as a transportation device but they, they don't really go very far I can show you with that um, but, but they're almost more of tourist photo opportunities as absolutely. opposed to anybody actually using them and people buy them you know when, when the phone companies got rid of them they gave people the opportunity to, to purchase them so you'll find some eccentric characters have them in their gardens and use them as greenhouses for their plants so um, but you, you'll still see one or two around but you might have to look quite hard yeah, yeah. I, I know personally my mum has always wanted one because she thinks it's you know a historical <laughs> English thing um, and it is I mean they're so they're so colourful you know and it really when they were on every street it must have really brightened sure. up the street and it's such it is such a lovely thing to have around and yeah unfortunately they'll they'll come a day when you know n- nobody recognises right. them Th- there may be more red telephone boxes here in the UK <laughs> oh, than no. there are remaining in the UK <laughs> Yeah, well, and there's actually, we saw there's, there's actually one uh, on the back of Regency Street. There's one out here. Yep. There is a, a, a very large red postal box, too, a very big, heavy postal box. And again, it looks like it says uh, ER on it. Are those, those are still things that you'd find? Yes, I mean, that's basically the, the kind of Queen's, uh, it's tied in with the Queen's initials, actually, the, the ER, and that's part of the some, and it, sort of a royal insignia, if you like, that's obviously the, po- the, post, uh, the postal service in the UK st- isn't a private company. It still belongs to the, to the Queen, if you like. It's, yeah. a, it's something that's, uh, that's, that's attached to that, and it isn't, uh, it, it's, it's, it's its own entity, isn't it? It's owned, it's owned by the Crown, if you like, the, the, the post office. So um, you'll find in all the... The red post boxes, by the way, still remain in the UK, and they're still, uh, you know, they're still everywhere. You can, you won't have to go far to find one, in a, in especially in a city. And you'll find that white plate on there will have those those initials, and usually the the collection and, and uh, dispatch time, so that you know when you're posting your letter as to when you're going to catch the next uh, postman who comes and collects it. 
And I don't know if you guys noticed, but as we were sitting here talking, two families came by, and as they were walking by, I says, oh, yeah, this is England, and they just kept on going. And again, it's, uh, I think for those people who aren't from England, say, hey, you know, we're part of the U.K. too. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to go inside the shops a little bit, um, and let's talk about maybe not just maybe the... Yeah the theming of the shops and the decor of the shops, maybe some of the items that you might find in there as well. So the first interior that we're going to go inside is the, the Twinings Tea Shop. Again, this building, this cottage from the 1500s, and it is exactly as you described it. It's got those, again, for me, um, they seem like high ceilings, but they're low ceilings. <laughs> and you're actually saying that if this was a real English college, they would actually be even lower. Yes, typically lower and probably a a foot or so lower and probably a lot more uneven because these huge beams do kind of, over time they have kind of given a little bit and just the materials that we used for the ceiling would be, would probably be a little bit more uneven but this huge fireplace would would definitely be a feature of a a property like this and you'd probably find a lot of kind of uh, smoke damage up up on on the the back of the fire just as you've got here actually. And you, you get the sense when you walk in that you're in somebody's home. You see the cupboards. Um, obviously, now they're filled with Twinings tea products, appropriately <laughs> enough. But even on the mantle of the fireplace, you'd see the utensils that they would use. You'd see these big, heavy pewter plates and, and pots and, and dishes. And you'd see the cast iron pots sort of hanging over where they would be cooking their food in this giant fireplace. Well, yeah, because you have to remember, I think, at the time, because there was no, no electricity uh, really at the time in properties like this, this fireplace would be the source of quite a lot of things, uh, certainly where food preparation, so you'd get the large kind of stew pots for the, for the food, and often they would take a, a, their baths near the fire, wouldn't they, yeah. in a great big sort of steel bathtub, sat in front of the fire to warm up, warm up the water, so I think this, the fact that this is quite a large area is... is you know, it's yeah, kind of a gesture to that. They've sort of left a large space in front of it, haven't they? And yeah, this is how it would be laid out in here. And I quite like the um, floral curtains because, again, <laughs> it gives you that, that cottagey sort of feel. And yeah, I think that's quite true to life. And again, even the floor, again, the, these heavy stone slabs is what you'd find on the floor. And as we start to walk into the Queen's Table, and again, Disney uses these portals, it uses these heavy wood archways notice not just looking above as it's still heavily beamed but the ceilings get a little higher and again the floor now is a wood plank full floor again we see the opposite side of these leaded uh, pane windows and again you're seeing different things as well like uh, everything from light fixtures and and things on the wall yeah, I think you're starting to see perhaps a little bit more kind of creativity coming into the into the design of the building as well because you've got you'll notice there are kind of more archways between between, between rooms and again you get a feeling of more space in here but the huge sort of uniform beams that that, that are part of this um, I think is definitely uh, definitely shows that you're moving forward in time from the previous building even though you're just you know moving within the same space if you like and in addition to selling teas and selling teacups and teapots. If you look on the walls, you see a lot of very ornately decorated saucers and teacups. And as we were talking about, you know, the appropriateness of a Twinings tea store, you even said that it, you wouldn't necessarily even only find a tea store in the UK, but high tea is still something that is a, a tradition carried on every day. 
And I think um, it's becoming more and more popular as people sort of want to step back in time. Um, I know in, in Norwich, where we come from, um, we've got um, a, a sort of a building in the city centre that's got a restaurant and they now do the sort of afternoon tea, you know. And um, you do have the cucumber sandwiches and the, the, the scone and, and cream um, and tea. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's not necessarily always Twining's tea. <laughs> um, but people from the UK do love a cup of tea. And I think also it's interesting that if this type of building exists in a town centre in the UK, and you'll often find a tea room in this type of building, won't you? It's yeah. been converted to a to a commercial space, if you like, but they've tried to keep as many of the original features, so you feel like you're having high tea in, a, in a, the environment in which you know it perhaps was first you know first enjoyed in and you'll get it even to the length of they'll use their kind of best china to, to give you that authentic experience and as em said scones with cream and jam and cucumber sandwiches if, if you <laughs> wish so and I, I think it's something that would uh, would go down well here actually <laughs> and you see that you still get the sense that you're in somebody's home but the curtains are now lace the, the, the furniture is a little more decorative again that there's heavy dark woods uh you're looking on the walls you're seeing you can almost imagine those sconces holding candles instead of holding uh electric lights as we have now so as you move into uh the next set of stores again the, the transition is marked by that portal and if you look on one side it's those dark heavy woods as you look on the other side it's more of an oakley very much more elaborate if you look at um, the recess ceiling, the recess ceilings, even the furniture changes color, changes shape. Um, you totally get the sense that you are in a different time and a different place. And it also feels like quite um, a much more expensive building. Um, you know, everything is all, all straight lines, and and the wood seems very good quality. Um, and it almost feels like there's more space, mm. even though it's not much larger than the cottage that we first came into it feels a lot more open and you've got that kind of more of the wood paneling on the walls which was you know a classic of, of its time that kind of wood paneling i think you know, it's still used in quite uh, important kind of civic buildings mm. now you know certainly in the uk and we've seen buildings here that are like that i think it's interesting also that you can see where the um, where the beams join you get this kind of octagonal kind of uh, um, joining piece of wood but quite often you'd see in perhaps stately homes of this time you'd see that they would have a carving on, on them themselves sometimes of, a, of, a, of the rows as well so there were plenty of opportunities to be a bit more ostentatious with this type of design. Right, you see that the design is not just utilitarian anymore like it was in the cottage, now it's much more decorative, they're able to spend money on making it more ornate and then finally as you pass through the next set of shops it changes once again and again the from the windows to uh, you first start seeing now you see wallpaper which is something you haven't seen before we were saying I think this building from the outside we were saying it's the first time people were starting to express themselves in terms of their perhaps cr creativity or individuality which wasn't perhaps so much encouraged uh, in, in the previous eras and, and as you say this is the first time 
um, I think appropriately that we start to see uh, the, the use of wallpaper mm. I think that became uh, you know what certainly from things that we've seen historically is one of the one of the easiest sort of self-expressions that went on at the time is to have someone come in with uh, particularly if you were wealthy with um, all sorts of different patterned wallpaper where you could basically you know, decorate your home yourself, couldn't you? Personalize it, if you like. And the fireplace here is now no longer a utilitarian fireplace. It's decorative and it's much more ornate. And there's sort of the marble hearth. And again, it's no longer the place that you're cooking your food. It's a, something to use for warmth. Yeah, it would have become a feature of the room. Um, and you also found that you'd almost have you know furniture to dress up the fireplace your your fire guard um would have become a decorative item um and the the focus of the room definitely and even the floor even the floor is a seems like it's a a better quality uh wood plank and then moving over into the last part of this building it's a total change from what you see before again again that threshold looks different on opposite sides you now have uh, a floral carpet. You've got painted walls that are sort of boxed out. And again, from the incredibly detailed crown molding to uh, the ceiling, even painted and decorated uh, like appropriate to the rest of the room. I think it's a continuation of, uh, of that um, self-expression coming in and moving through time. But, you know, clearly wealth had played a part in it as well. And if you had the wealth, you were encouraged to... To, to show that, weren't you? You're encouraged to, to express it. And this is the first time we've seen, for example, carpets on the floors. And, and not just the fact that there are columns around the doors, but they're really ornately, ornately kind of put, to, put together columns and all these recesses around the room because people like to have their ornaments out. You know, things like carvings and statues and busts would be typically displayed in a, in a recess like that, wouldn't they? Perhaps not in a kind of family home on the street, but certainly some of the larger houses you would see this type of thing going on, the ceiling in particular. If you went to some stately homes of, their, of this era in the UK, you would see these type of ceilings. Right, and again, you get a sense of it's very much a feminine room and it's appropriate because they sell ladies handbags they sell perfume and soaps and bath and body things so you can almost get the sense that this was the woman's room the woman's parlor whatever it is and this is something that was unique to her and again if you're looking out onto the street you're looking out onto the uh, very well manicured gardens and your planters and you're looking out maybe over your property or the uh, sort of the town square and, and the garden that way. Yeah, it, it would have been nice to have looked out over at the park, you know, and, and decide whether you're going to go for a walk that morning or not. Um, but what I like in here is is the colour of the paintwork. Um, it's very crisp white and cream and that sort of blue and green um, and also the painted furniture that they've got in here um, again it's become very fashionable over the last sort of decade, people going out and buying antique furniture and, and painting it in your pastel colours um, again a sort of you know um, a retro feel Yeah and you get a sense of period, I mean I think these are great examples of the use of decor and color and lighting and, and to give you a sense of that passage through time, even on the inside of the buildings. Um, we're going to walk across the street, to, across Tudor Lane, into the Toy Soldier. And as I was walking through here before, uh, as soon as you walk in, 
you are met with four mannequins with distinctive haircuts, obviously <laughs> front and center and throughout the store. Um, when you walk in from here, are the Beatles. And we were joking around before about perception. It's all about perception and how the Beatles changed perception and really introduced people in the 60s to the music and the culture and the people of the UK. Uh, is that same feeling there? I mean, are the Beatles, everybody listen to the Beatles in the UK? <laughs> I don't think so. I think that um, the UK is probably divided about the Beatles I think some people love them and and some people sort of aren't interested at all I think a lot of people see it as like musical heritage um, it, you know it may have been sort of one of the first bands that had the, the following that they did and you know but in sort of later times you know there's a t-shirt there for you too and maybe they were sort of you know the sort of the modern version of the Beatles and we were sort of saying that I think that the sort of the later generations perhaps like Oasis it would be nice if they featured something about Oasis in here because they certainly had a massive following for a long time right. each generation sort of has yeah. their but I think the yeah. Beatles were just sort of the first real introduction and sort of defined our fascination with the culture yeah. I, th- I think it would be hard to to, to try and um, capture something that was that was quintessentially British and, and music that in, in a way wasn't the Beatles because there's certainly been movements, musical movements in the UK. Obviously punk kind of started in the UK but it's not a very family friendly thing to, to have uh, even though it could be quite colourful but uh, right, and it was the 80s sort of synth pop coming <laughs> yeah. over there so again you can tell we're, we're dating ourselves with <laughs> the music we're talking about. Um, architecturally very different. Again we're on the interior of uh, Regency Street, where we talked about the very high end, uh, especially today, where they're still building, where people are still buying very high end uh, residences. Here again, too, you see very ornately the wood is decorated now, and the ceilings are much higher. And again, it's a, a higher quality of wood. Again, you've got the wood floors, and as you walk farther back uh, into the pavilion, you see that there's another room with a high domed ceiling. The color palette has changed. There's columns in the corner. Uh, in the back, there's also uh, an elaborate uh, bookcase, incredibly well detailed. And you get that sense of that 1920s English explorer, that this area would have been sort of his room. And we, get, we had the feminine room on the opposite side. You have a ve- much more masculine-feeling room again here in this section with the dome ceiling and even farther back. Uh, where they do have character meet and greets, but if you look through, there are bookshelves and there's a globe. And again, you almost would have gotten a sense that there'd be these large, high back chairs here, a fireplace in this room. And again, appropriately, there's, there's Mary Poppins music playing in the background. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, you talk about people sort of not noticing details. Um, I've never actually been to the back of this shop, and I'm like, oh, it's really pretty. Um, but yeah, it's it's very grand, and and you know, it, it looks like the master's study. You know, the man of the house may well have shut himself away in here for many hours at a time, um, researching his travels or you know his work. Yeah, and I think there's quite a few gestures to the fact that you know people were starting to travel a lot more, weren't they? And perhaps like uh, displaying things that, that showed that, that where they'd been and they've done it's interesting they've got the kind of the, the, the wooden ship up there because that is uh, 
that's something that de- definitely belongs to a particular time, that sort of ornament, and the, and the globe in the corner there as well. Um, so it definitely says to me, as you say, that someone who lived here was, uh, was kind of worldly-wise or, or travelling the world. Well, and you get the sense, too, uh, if you look in this central area with the, uh, with the very bright domed ceiling, and again, there's the multiple pallets of greens and marbles, if you look towards the street, you see that this was the entrance to someone's home, that there was this marble foyer, an entranceway, and step down, and an ornate chandelier. And again, you sort of have those, uh, those decorations on the ceiling that are beyond just paint. Um, they're actually things that are, that are attached to the ceiling and very detailed crown moldings. Um, so again, this was clearly a house of someone who was much more opulent, much more wealthy. Yeah, I mean, people, people were all about making the grand statements then I think particularly as you say this is the the entrance to the building so it was a it was you know you're struck by it as soon as, as soon as you walk in you're left in no doubt the person who, who lives here what type of person they are what perhaps social standing they have yeah and you talked about the details and if you've never been back here you need to sort of go and pay attention especially in here to some of the incredible artifacts at, that Disney put into what would have been this explorer's room again there's there's skulls and there's elephants and ships and you can almost you see his pith helmet and things from all of his adventures and if, if you were an adventurers club fan you'll very much get that sense there uh, the other section here is more of a child's toy shop and we were both looking at some of the same things not just looking up at a unique chandelier again with that stained glass but even the door has a central pane of, of very heavy, very rich stained glass work. And again, I've noticed something new for the first time ever. Um, the the panels and the um, glass work in here was by a designer called Charles René McIntosh, um, and he's um, from Scotland. So you can immediately identify the interior of here mm-hmm. is meant to be based on a Scottish building of some kind. Right, so again, you're getting not just... Britain, but you're getting a sense of all of these areas of the UK being represented. So in coming out and looking into the window, we're in sort of this um, covered archway here. You see this is the toy soldier, again, a hallmark of what a lot of people, especially here, think of. We think of the UK, you think of the soldiers standing outside with their hats. Um, obviously something that's still the, it's, it's tradition and it's, it's, where tourists would probably go first. It's really interesting, actually, because we were talking about this a couple of days ago, that um, given that that image of the soldier standing guard, I mean, that's typically one of the kind of soldiers that stands outside Buckingham Palace, even to this day. Um, I think it would be quite interesting to have that, um, given it's a tourist attraction in London, the changing of the guard, when they literally change over the guards of Buckingham Palace, there's a, a lot of uh, ceremony attached to that with, uh, uh, with the guards kind of converging on, in the entranceway of Buckingham Palace. It would be, it'd be quite nice if, uh, if perhaps Disney could, uh, could do the, a mini changing of the guards yeah. here because um, obviously the, it's instantly recognisable. You look at that uh, character in the window there, you know exactly what that's supposed to be. Um, and of course a double-decker bus as well which is uh, which which again we said is you know something you know it still exists in in the UK the red double-decker buses are are found in London Um, and again you know wouldn't it be nice if they could somehow get one of them in the UK (laughs) pavilion for people to kind of have a walk around on or you know 
children to sit on and play. Well, this is very much sort of representative of things are, that are uh, very much for children, very much from the UK. There's Paddington Bear, there's Pooh Bear, there's a picture of Peter Pan. There are the blocks, and inside we saw the blocks from Mary Poppins. And again, Pooh is wearing his uh, very English policeman's hat. <laughs> yeah, um, you still get them wearing those, don't you? But they wear a lot of the, the flatter caps now. But again, yeah, it's something that you instantly recognise as a, an English bobby, they're called, aren't they? Yeah, they are. <laughs> I was going to say bobby, but I wasn't sure. Yeah, was. yeah. <laughs> Walking across uh, into the Crown and Crest, this is the first of the stores, that's two stories. And again, we talked about how on the outside, this would have been one of those stately manors that was separated out, um, again, a very wealthy home. You totally get that sense here, and again, with those warm, dark woods um, and ceilings that are very, very high. Yes, I mean, you can see that it's not just the fact that the, the ceilings are high, but everywhere where there is wood, there's not just... It's not just plain. There's carvings in all the, in all the kind of banisters. Um, there's carpets up up the stairs, for example. So this this definitely, um, and even the tapestries that are hanging out. So this definitely you can you can feel belongs to a you know a, what would be a stately home now. Yeah. And you even said that before that if you went there now you would see some of those old tapestries still hanging um, in a building much like this. But um, undoubtedly the most detailed and ornate and again you get a sense of regal royal when you come here and again so many of the wonderful details and artifacts you find up on the shelves as well yeah, I mean, this, um, the crests that are everywhere, because quite often you find with those stately homes, there's a, they've been perhaps stayed in one family or generations of the same family for year after year. So you'd, you'd find that the family crest, as it changed through the ages, was displayed. Tapestries telling stories of, of, of you know, events of that time would be on display. And also probably statues and busts of the, of the people that, that lived there, if they, depending on, uh, on what their social standing was. Moving into the final section of these connected stores, but all telling a different story. Again, you're, you're crossing over through the portal, and this one, again, is that pointed archway, very gothic-looking, heavy stone portal, and the walkway is lined on either side with glass cases of shields and swords, which are available for purchase, but again, you are getting the sense of moving through time and moving through space, and again, as you get into the main proper part of this section of the store where there are these very heavy uh, you know, metal chandeliers and the giant stone fireplace. Uh, this is where the, you can purchase uh, family crests and some of these decorative swords and things like that. Uh, again, the, the floor has changed. The ceilings are sawing, soaring and beam steel ceilings with these beautiful uh, hanging flags that would represent, I guess, the family seals or the family crests of whoever would be living here, much as we said we saw on the outside as well. As, as you said, it's this kind of heraldry that's everywhere now, and uh, that's sort of accentuated now, and you've got this kind of, uh, um, all this battle-related uh, uh, stuff around, like the, the suits of armour, and even now in, in stately homes of this, of this age, you'd see um, suits of armour kind of lining corridors, wouldn't you? And uh, you'd see, uh, like, those 
those kind of t- those pikes there, the, the, the long the long pikes with the axe heads on them, typically kind of crossed over doorways, perhaps. Um, definitely very much on display this because it was a time of, uh, of, of of battles. I mean, there's a lot of historical battles in in England involved at this time, like the, um, through through time. So you, you'd see um, typically you could perhaps date the house even from the type of armour that was on display because obviously that all, all changed over time and as you say the, the it, it, it's kind of a powerful sort of feeling being in here those chandeliers look uh, looking look incredible yeah you get the sense that you are and again remember the opposite side of this is that brick Hampton Court style mm. building you get the sense that you are in uh, an ancient you know English castle it feels like this room feels like almost like a uh, the great hall that maybe they would have their their big sort of banqueting yeah. table um, because of the high ceilings and every the the, the decoration on the on right. the wall. And everybody everybody in England has a, house, a room just like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, we all have dining rooms. <laughs> <laughs> and in the sportsman shop again, you get this sense of a very masculine room you see the crowns sort of on the top of all of the uh the shelving and the, the wood very again intricately intricately decorated wood and very very unique ceiling i don't even know what to call it not just because of the chandeliers but sort of these these hanging sort of finials on the bottom yeah again i think it's you, you've got that mixture of the kind of power of the of the you know, the symbolism that's going on in the wood with these with these turrets that are in here again the archways everywhere so you've got this quite kind of powerful uh, um, sort of statement from those but then you've got this kind of the, the kind of more finer expressions that are in this uh, really ornate ceiling and uh, I think again it was you can see that this was a, a house that, or a place that belonged to someone, probably royalty with the crowns everywhere and the crests, um, and obviously someone who had considerable power and money as well and probably had could call on the finest kind of architects and, and builders in the land to do it. Yeah, and even the archways and the doorways um, have statues carved into the wood. So, again, uh, not something you'd see in everyday England, but, but, again, if you were going as a tourist, you would find these in some of the manners and the castles that you go and visit definitely i mean this is one of those things i suppose where where it's important to look above your eye level but i think with the thing about buildings of this era and of this size is that because they were so high ceilinged and so grand you can't help but look up and in fact i think uh, some of the things that are going on some of the um, decorations above the door frames above the archways make you do that anyway it's almost like you you, you can't you can't miss it mm. because everything is your eyes are dragged upwards because of the scale of the place and I think when you go to a stately home in the UK that's what you find perhaps not bagpipes but you find <laughs> other things <laughs> and as we come out of the sportsman shop and again I'm going to cross the promenade and take a quick look over at the Rose and Crown you mentioned again uh, the gardens and the topiaries Yes, I just find it quite interesting because, you know, again, as a, as a kind of statement of, of wealth and, and creativity that, you know, people that own these stately homes would obviously have legions of staff to do things. And uh, it's one of the f- first, I think, instances you'll see in UK history of when they started to do things like creative with things like topiary. And the first time you actually encounter it in this part of uh, the park or this part of the UK is in front of the Hampton Court Palace. So I think that, you know, someone's done their homework. <laughs> Yeah, and that's, you know, Disney's attention to detail is unmatched. And unfortunately, I think 99% of the guests 
often miss a lot of the details because maybe they don't look up or they don't understand the significance. And I think that's why it's great that you guys are here to sort of help connect and tie that all together. <laughs> uh, as we cross over High Street to the Rose and Crown Pub, for a lot of people, modern day England is associated mm-hmm. with the traditional English pub. But again, you need to look carefully. Uh, again, looking at the sign, it's Odium Cum Dignite, Leisure with Dignity, which is how many of us perceive, you know, <laughs> proper English. But the Rose and Crown, much like the rest of the pavilion, is actually made up of four different and distinct types of pubs. Uh, on the street, you've got this street-side pub, uh, very much re- reminiscent of an 1890s Victorian city center. You've got this brick uh, paneling. Inside, you've got this mahogany bar and the etched glass. You have a Dickensian pub, which is modeled after uh, the Chelsea Cheese Pub in London. You've got this brick-walled flagstone terrace. You've got the tables outside. You've got the slate roof, again, looking at not just ground level, but looking up at how the roof lines change. On the inside and on the outside, you've got the waterfront-styled pub, uh, a very sort of moder- uh, a modest stone building and the stone terrace. Again, when the weather is beautiful, it's a great place to sit out and eat, watch illuminations at night. And you've got this the provincial, this country-style pub, uh, based on the suburbs of the 17th and 18th centuries. Again, the slate roof, that plain plaster exterior, as we see on this side here. And if you look even at the different addresses on the outside of the pub, you'll see that they are almost different buildings, although interior, they make up a single pub. I think it's interesting because this, the one that's facing us here, you can, I think you can tell immediately just from the font of the name what type of era it belongs yeah. to and the fact that, that you know, several of those pubs from that era still remain on in UK sort of town centres especially and uh, even though a lot of them have been taken over by chain names and breweries they've still tried to keep keep traditional and uh, keep it traditional and so you'll often find that the name of the pub is still in that type of gilded sort of uh, yeah. font so you know uh, I think there's uh, you can think of pubs in London that just look like that so I think it's a uh, it's, you know the exterior with as you say with the kind of frosted glass there and even that, that mahogany bar it's just sort of a, a feature of that of that sort of pub for sure right and I think that's what, again, what a lot of people associate now you walk into the Rose and Crown and yeah this is you know is that the feeling of a traditional English pub you'll find those old giant mahogany you know, bars with, with Guinness on tap at just the right temperature? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, without even walking in, you know, we think that we're going to see the mahogany bar, there's going to be the rows of glasses above the bar that the barman takes off, you know, they're going to um, pull you a pint of, of beer, draft beer, um, and there's going to be probably quite a bit of chrome inside as well. Um, I used to clean a pub, so I used to spend hours <laughs> cleaning chrome, um, um, but yeah, you know, and and you'll find so many of these pubs, um, you know, and and I even know that in in Norwich where we live, people often give directions based on the pubs. So if you're trying to find a, a certain road, they'll actually say, well, you know the Rose and Crown, go down that road and then you'll get to the Red Lion. We'll take a left at the Red Lion. They, you know, we literally use them as road signs. I think it's also interesting that. When uh, if if these kind of chain-owned breweries come in, into a pub and, and and kind of give it a do-over, perhaps a pub that's been closed for a while, one of the one of the things they'll strive to do instead of ultra, making it ultra modern, looking with kind of glass and chrome everywhere and uh, you know in kind of open spaces, is that they'll 
they'll generally convert it to, to looking as traditional as possible. Yeah. So, you know, they won't lose that kind of uh, dark oak kind of bar, the hardwood long bar. And uh, so there is, I think that's ingrained into, into English pub tradition, that look. So have you ever been into this Rosen Crown pub? Yes. And it looks like so. This so, but, but I want to just walk in real quickly. Um, I'd love to sit and eat with you guys. I <laughs> yeah. wish we had time. It'd be a six-hour segment because you know how look long. At, my... Look at the queue for the fish and chips. Well, yeah, and I want to. I want to <laughs> talk to you about that. But I want to just take a quick look um, inside the pub and the restaurant itself, and have you tell me. Everyone's standing at the bar. This this is home. It really is. And it's early afternoon too. Let's let's be clear. We yeah we have um, some crazy sort of almost twenty four hour openings in some of our pubs now. So it it can be any time of day, and there'll be some people sitting up at the bar, propping up the bar. Propping up the bar. Um, and again, we talked about how this is made up of distinct styles, but looking at the dining room here, again, you see some, some of that bubbled glass. You see the changes in, you know, you've got the uh, a decorated roof in here at the Rosen Crown, and they've got the heavy wood-beamed uh, room next to it. And again, a, a more decorative room next door, changes in the carpet. Are these the kind of dining rooms you'd find uh, in a pub like this as well? Yeah, I think this is very traditional. Um, the, the, I mean, the, the seats that they've got at the tables. The yeah, the chairs, you know, that, that's spot on. That, it, it, it really is an English pub. Um, the, the fireplace and dartboard. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the wood and, um, you know, the, the decoration, the lighting. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's even, how you see it. And even the, the, the Toby jugs that are around the... the uh, the, the kind of on the walls here. I mean, it used to be in particularly in kind of country pubs that if you were a, a regular at that pub, you would probably have a pewter or Toby jug that belonged to you behind the bar. So you'd go in and you because you were such a regular, they'd get your they'd get your drinking vessel out for you and pour, and pour the drink that they knew they knew you would have because you have it every day. There's also a dartboard on the wall, um, and I don't know if that's just like an English thing. I don't know if you play darts in the States. But, um, I mean, in the UK, they have uh, pub teams purely for darts leagues. You know, they'll have a, a darts night, and all the, all the pub, local pubs will come together, and they'll have teams, and, you know... It's, uh, it's quite a sort of a social standing. <laughs> and also pub quizzes. That would be a good thing that they could have in here. The English pub quiz. People love it. Usually they, you know, they'll, they'll fill up the, di- the dining area with people and, and uh, they usually have a meal while they're doing it. And the, the landlord of the pub will have a series of trivia questions and he'll, he'll fire them out of people to, to write down. And each, t- t- each table is a team and they'll... St- as they reach the end of one round, they'll swap their answers with the other team and mark the other team. At the end of it, the team who has the most correct answers wins a prize from from the landlord. And it, that, I mean, it's really it's really helped kind of boost the popularity of pubs for like families in the in the UK. That type of thing as they're you know, trying to make sure that pubs uh, pubs keep going in the UK because a lot have been closing over the last few years. It's just an excuse to sit down and drink, I think. <laughs> <Right>. but. <laughs> But yeah, if, if you have a chance to come and eat at Rose and Crown, and you guys have to come back, we have to yeah. eat, eat here. But again, get a sense of the fact that you are in uh, one of four different types, and you can tell by the decorations and what's on the walls, and, and even just the tables and chairs that you're sitting at. 
But one thing I, I want to do with you guys, um, because we can't sit down and have a full meal, and you can tell me if the bangers and mash and the blood <laughs> sausage and all these things are authentic. Uh, I've eaten here a number of times, and I really enjoyed it. I actually did uh, a video uh, at, the U, at, at the UK Rose and Crown where I sampled a lot of the foods. I'll have to link to it in this week's show notes. But outside, um, sort of connected but separate from the Rose and Crown pub, is the Yorkshire County Fish Shop, which, as always, has a very, very long line from the moment that it opened. And we need to get some fish and chips, and you need to tell me how authentic this is, and it's really just an excuse to eat. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I'm interested to see if they are like um, the the chips that you get from a fish and chip shop uh, are a, a very certain way. They're not the kind of chips that we make at home or you call fries. Um, and and the batter is a certain sort of texture as well. I mean, so there are certain fish. That it's a big deal in the UK because they have competitions for like the be, the best chippy, as they yeah. they call fish and chip shops, um, based on their batter. And you know, there are kind of secretly guarded recipes mm. that have gone through families, uh, generations about how they make up their batter so I'm definitely interested to see how this one stacks up. But now would you find a fish and chips sort of a counter service shop like this on a street corner somewhere? Um, you will, they'll always be inside, it's you know it's, it's going to be a shop that you walk into, they'll have a counter they'll have the fish and chips kind of on show so they, they're continually cooking it um, and, and you sort of basically walk up and, and take your order um, and you'll have this it's kind of you'll have wrapped or unwrapped okay. so they'll either wrap your fish and chips so you can take it home and eat or they'll have it unwrapped which means you can put your salt and vinegar on it and eat it on the street okay so you just led to my next question because before <laughs> I embarrass myself what's the proper way to eat fish and chips and I, and I have a feeling you're going to say it's not tartar sauce no, um, you can have ketchup or brown sauce with your fish and chips. Brown sauce? Yes, brown sauce. Uh, what, yeah. what, tell me what brown sauce is. The HP sauce. Okay. Um, and also salt and vinegar. Loads of vinegar. Um, <laughs> and vinegar. And again. So, yeah, and so you actually brought me, you were kind of to bring me <laughs> HP sauce from the UK. Something which is very foreign to me. Describe, if you can, compare it to something that we would have here because usually here in America when you have uh, fish like this, you would have either tartar sauce, or, and I put salt and vinegar on mine, and they're like, what, you know, I put vinegar on my fish. Or, and salt and vinegar on my french fries like what's wrong with you man <laughs> no that's that's correct that's definitely correct um the brown sauce is it's i think spicy they, sauce, isn't it? they Ta- just, quite tangy they describe it as fruity but i think it's it's spicy it's it's like a barbecue sauce but it's got a different spice to it okay. i think I don't, I don't remember. I'm curious if they have it here. Mm. They should do. Uh, you know, they they should offer it. Um, but I mean, there are so many things that you get from a fish and chip shop, not just your fish and chips. Um, we Bat- battered sausage, for example, one of my favourite things to eat in a fish and chip <laughs> shop yeah, in the UK. Bars now. Yeah. <laughs> you can bring anything. Bring anything to the fish and chip shop. Say a say a chocolate bar or something. You ask them about you. You could batter it for you oh I'm so moving to England (laughs) (laughs) so um but you can get uh chip butties 
<laughs> Sorry? <laughs> a chip butty. <laughs> which, you need to describe <laughs> Which is a roll, uh, like a white bread roll, um, and you just put your chips in it. Buttered, a buttered roll, buttered really. Buttered roll, with, with, yeah. With chips in it. Chip butty. Obviously loaded up with vinegar as well. So, so wait, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm sweating. <laughs> you basically have French fries on a roll. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, in, in a roll, like yeah. a sandwich. In a roll. A French fry sandwich. Oh my god! <laughs> I found heaven, and it's in the UK. But it's not a sandwich because a sandwich is sliced bread. <laughs> so you kind of just an open so roll. So it's, it's a roll. Okay. A chip buddy. Yes. B U T T Y chip buddy. I'm gonna go home and ask my wife to make me a chip buddy. <laughs> and uh, fish cakes we have, which is kind of fish and potato normally mixed together with herbs um, in breadcrumbs and then deep fried (laughs) you guys are big on the frying yeah 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 Um, and we we were curious to know if they did mushy peas here because mushy peas again is a big fish and chip thing sort of a standard I love mushy peas Um, they 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 have something inside the the something egg um Scotch egg, pickle, a, a, pickle a Scottish. Egg? Is that what's it called? I noticed at the pub they have that, like a, a Scotch egg, which a is a, egg, like a hard-boiled egg, usually surrounded right. with kind of uh, sausage, sausage meat, meat. Right, and right. then uh, then breadcrumbs, yes. and then and then fried. But you don't typically get those from fish and chip shops, do you? No. Scotch eggs. You can get pickled eggs from fish and chip shops, <laughs> where it's a hard-boiled egg, and then it's kept in a jar of vinegar, which sounds <laughs> awful. <laughs> <laughs> um, like pickled onions. Okay. Do you have pickled onions over here? Oh, I, I, uh, some people are probably saying yes. I've never. I've had. I, I think I may have had a pickled egg maybe before. Yeah, I mean pickled onions again. Small onions that um, are kept in jars of vinegar. So for some reason they decided to do the same thing with uh, okay. boiled eggs. But I think that is kind of you know again it's that love hate. You either right. love it or you don't touch it. At I, all. Think, I think it's fair to say that you you don't have to go far in the UK like town or village to, to find a fish and chip shop normally oh, I mean no. it's just it's one of those things that's kind of as uh, should be you should go into a, any village or town in England and you know that you're probably going to happen upon a pub and a chippy uh, fish and chip shop so um, I think that's I think that's pretty much a standard now yes. wouldn't you yeah. say it's yeah I, you know it's almost like it's our traditional food our traditional dish or something you know and, and most of them are, are family owned as well you don't there's, there are some chain names obviously Harry Ramsden's is is a, is, a, is a big kind of worldwide name now, I think, with a fish and chip brand, but um, most of them are family owned, yeah. you know. And you also get to know the person who runs your chip shop, okay. which is very British, <laughs> isn't it? Um, you know, you're sort of if you if you're a regular, and a lot of people will have it as like their Saturday night dinner. Um, it's a treat at the weekend to have your fish and chips, and you'll go in and and they'll know that you're a regular, and you know they recognise you. It's sort of they're like, already yeah. dropping the fish in the fryer before you <laughs> yeah. walk in the door. Really? All right, two words. Blood sausage. That is um, a Scottish thing, isn't it? It is, um, yeah. And it's normally eaten with like a fried breakfast. Um, and again, it's kind of you either love it or hate it. Because um, when you start sort of thinking about what it is, really, <laughs> it's a bit like haggis. Oh, haggis, mm. which is you know sure. Scottish, and yeah, again, some people love it and some people hate it. Okay, so we just got our fish and chips. We found a nice, quiet, shady spot here on Tudor Lane. And 
you guys are doing it right. You're putting a lot of vinegar and a little bit of salt on your fish and chips, and nice to know that I've been doing it right the whole time. <laughs> but I want to get your reaction. And the first thing you said was you couldn't find knives and forks, and you're like, well, you can't eat fish and chips with your friend. He is so proper. I love you guys. <laughs> um, I think people eat, when you um, get fish and chips from a chip shop and you are having it unwrapped or open so that you can eat it as you walk down the street, um, you could eat your chips with your fingers, but you certainly wouldn't attempt to eat, eat fish with your fingers. You'd have to have a knife and fork M- Most for your fish, fish and chip shops in the UK will give you at least a little wooden fork because they know that people like to kind of spear their chips with them and kind of tear at the fish with them so I'd, I'd say eating with eating with fingers is generally a bit of a no-no. <laughs> the, the, the standard, yeah, small wooden fork okay. um, is something that you will see in every single chip shop and it's what everyone grabs to eat their fish and chips with. And so the way, and Disney's plastic wax paper is meant to look like newspaper, I guess, how it was, now is it still served in newspaper? No, I think... Everybody's like, what's a newspaper? (laughs) I think with all the health and safety regulations there are now. I know that... um, Yeah, I know um, sort of certain, sort of like, uh, certain chip shops will do... They'll put the food in a a grease-proof sort of bag or paper. And if you are having it open or to go, they they will sometimes give you a couple of sheets of newspaper around that. Um, But, yeah, you're not allowed to have your food touching newspaper (laughs) anymore. But, yeah. It does look authentic. Okay. All right, so taste test. Go ahead. I'm already salivating a bit, I will say, because vinegar and fish and chips just does that to I me. So vinegar. I'm sashay there. I took loads, actually. I think the most important thing for me, especially with, like, with, with, with fish, is that it's got to be nice and white and flaky when you kind of tear open the batter, and, oh, this definitely is. Um, and, again, the batter's quite important, isn't it, as well? Yeah. And the, the chips... The chips are spot on because, um, as we were saying, they're chip shop chips aren't like what you make at home. You know, they've got this unique taste to them, unique texture, um, and I think that's why everyone goes to the chippy, you know, to get their chips. Um, and yeah, this is good. This is pretty spot yeah, on. Yeah, it is. The batter's the batter's really nice. The good thing about applying a lot of vinegar to it is it softens the batter up as well. So. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> everyone, everyone who's listening now is hankering for fish and Well, I, I'm as starving as you are, and um, and I think maybe this is a good time for us to wrap up as appropriate enough. The fish and chips is as authentic as the rest of the pavilion is uh, from beginning to end, both in history and in detail and in representation of the different regions, um, the different parts of the UK, and again, the UK over time. So uh, I really appreciate you guys taking time out of your holiday um, to come here and help us hopefully learn a little bit more about a pavilion maybe that some people just kind of wander through or maybe shop through and don't take the time to look up and look around. So I appreciate it. Let's dig into our fish and chips and God save the Queen. <laughs> Thank you, Lou. It's been great to actually take time in, in the UK pavilion for people from the UK to actually stop and look and think about where we can see these back home. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, so thank you very much. I still love the accents. I just love them. You guys will talk all day long. <laughs>
That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for taking the time and tuning in. My apologies again for my voice this week. Still battling something that's obviously taking its toll on me. But I did want to say a quick thank you for tuning in. Remind you to contact the show by emailing me at lou at wdwradio.com. If you want to be heard on the air, call the voicemail at 888-703-2171. Please come by and visit the website over at wdwradio.com. There you'll find our fun, friendly, safe discussion forums, daily blog posts, photo galleries, new videos, a chance to sign up for our free email newsletter, and so, so much more. Also, don't forget to join me every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern for the WDW Newscast, where I do a live, interactive video news show covering Walt Disney World. You can be part of the broadcast and discussion and talk about the news with me real-time in the chat room. Come by, visit that at www.newscast.com. Again, that's Wednesday night, 7.30 Eastern. If you don't get a chance to catch the newscast, you can come by, watch it, and subscribe and continue the conversation over on the YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash Radio. And just because the holidays are over, you can treat yourself or somebody else to the Walt Disney World trivia books or my audio guides to Walt Disney World on CD. You can visit the shop over at www.radio.com slash shop or subscribe or order back issues of Celebrations Magazine. You can visit the magazine website over at celebrationspress.com. If you're going to be in Walt Disney World over Marathon Weekend, January 7th through the 9th, 2011, please come by the WDW Radio Meet of the Month. It's going to be Saturday at 2 p.m. That's January 7th at the Tomorrowland Terrace Noodle Station. Just going to be a casual meetup of WDW Radio friends and listeners. If you're running in the half marathon that day, you'll have plenty of time to go back, get changed, come by and join us for a couple of hours over at the Noodle Station. No RSVP is required, of course, but if you are planning on coming by and joining us, please come by and you can RSVP over on the Facebook event page. You can check that by visiting the events tab over at facebook.com slash Radio. Or for more information, just visit DisneyMeets.com. Thanks, as always, to my partners and sponsors, including MEI and Mouse Fan Travel. They are my official and recommended travel provider for all your vacation planning needs. You can visit Becky and her team over at MouseFanTravel.com. At AllStarVacationHomes.com, they have more than 150 homes within just a couple of miles of Walt Disney World. They have private pools, spas, kitchen, game rooms, lots, lots more. Again, their website is AllStarVacationHomes.com. And if you're looking to stay right in the heart of Walt Disney World, the Walt Disney World Swan and Dolphin are some of my favorite resorts, especially because of their heavenly beds, the Mandara Spa, and of course, the 17 world-class restaurants and lounges. For more information, you can visit swananddolphin.com. That's it. I think my voice has officially given out on me. But as always, my friends, if you like the show, please help spread the word and let others know about it. Tweet out that you're listening. Share the link on Facebook and come by review the show and or the free WW Radio iPhone app over in iTunes. And now more than ever, my friends, with the new year approaching, the new year brings new opportunity for you to take that first step towards pursuing your passion and following your dream. And when you do, to always, always keep moving forward. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a very happy new year. See ya. Hello, Lou. It's Darlene Maggie from Buffalo, New York, and we are now December 27th, two months down to our cruise. I am 
So, Trill, Deck 7 is going to be a rocking place to be, and we all can't wait to see each other and get to know everybody that's going on the cruise. Hope you've had a Merry Christmas, and have a Happy New Year, you, your family, and everybody in our community. Um, have a great day. Talk to you real soon. Bye. Lou, Sam M. from Pittsburgh. Congratulations on show 200. More important, had a call in after show 201. The Sci-Fi Dine-In Theater is a must-do for the family every time we get to Walt Disney World. In fact, it's one of the first dining reservations that I make. There are some great memories there, especially the uh, video screens. And the one thing that my kids wanted to make sure, if anybody goes in there, beware of the blob, it creeps and leaps and glides and slides across the floor, right through the door and all around the wall. A slots, a blush, be careful of the blob. Beware of the blob. Thanks, Lou. Mary Mongello. Hey, Lou, this is Jared. I'm calling from uh, southern Illinois. Just listened to the episode regarding Ellen's energy adventure, and um, you were discussing the actor who played Albert Einstein in the show. Uh, According to imdb.com, it's a gentleman by the name of Benny Wasserman. Love this show, and thanks a lot. Can't wait to see you in January at the marathon. Take it easy. Bye. Hey, Luke, this is Tony Mendike from Ocean View, New Jersey. Just called to congratulate you on winning Best Travel Podcast at the Podcast Awards. Uh, congratulations, sir. Keep it coming. Hey, Lou, it's Todd from Jersey. It's been a long time since I've called in, but I've been keeping up with listening and love the show as much as always. It's great stuff. And in a belated note, just finished listening to episode 200. Uh, congratulations to you on getting to this point. Uh, you keep saying how um, surprised you are you made it that far, but again, the quality of the product that you give us to listen to uh, speaks for itself as to the size of your audience that keeps growing um, through um, the uh, podcast and the magazine and everything like that. It's uh, great stuff. Please keep doing it. We love listening. Um, And hopefully we will see you again soon, and perhaps me, my uh, wife will get you another uh, set of uh, the cookies like we did this summer when we finally got to meet. Uh, congratulations again. Hope you're feeling better, and uh, happy holidays to you and your family. Enjoy and have a magical time and most magical time of year, and see ya. 